This podcast is brought to you by Knowledge at Wharton. Welcome back to the Knowledge of Wharton podcast. I'm Rachel Kipp, Associate Editorial Director of the Knowledge of Wharton website. We're here today with Brian Feinstein. He's a professor of legal studies and business ethics, and he's here to talk to us about his paper, Congress in the Administrative State. Brian, thanks for being with us. Thank you. Now, one thing people, I think, on both sides of the aisle would probably agree on is that the role of Congress is in a decline or that they're just not accomplishing much these days. But you actually present an alternative view in this paper. Can you explain that? Yeah, that's right. So uh, I I wouldn't take issue too much uh, with the notion that overall uh, Congress is in the decline. I think the most recent public opinion uh, poll that I saw had uh, public approval of Congress at around 13 percent. And in a a lot of important ways, um, uh, Congress isn't using its powers uh, to the fullest extent that it could. Uh, There's gridlock, uh, just a feeling of partisan bickering, uh, struggles with some routine tasks like passing on-time budgets and and, uh, debt ceiling votes. Um, But uh, my research shows that that's only part of the story that Congress actually remains quite vigorous in several other uh, often overlooked ways, uh, including its oversight activities. So Congress, the House and the Senate combined, uh, hold around 300 oversight hearings each year. Um, And these are hearings where uh, a congressional committee will haul in an agency official, uh, say the EPA administrator, uh, into a hearing and subject that person to aggressive questioning regarding a decision uh, that the committee disapproves of. Uh, Some of these hearings are high profile, and we have uh, the Watergate hearings or Iran-Contra or Benghazi or in the public mind, Uh, but most of these 300 hearings a year uh, don't make headlines. Uh, So they're not really opportunities for publicity-seeking by legislators. These are uh, actually uh, efforts to to change regulatory agencies' priorities uh, and practices, uh, usually in small ball types of ways. And um, so... uh, Basically, my argument is, uh, or the motivation for the paper, rather, is that when we assess Congress's powers and Congress's effectiveness, uh, we shouldn't only look at Congress's direct formal powers, uh, like passing laws. Uh, We also ought to look at Congress's soft powers, uh, like oversight. Um, And what I find when I empirically assess the effectiveness of oversight is that under certain certain circumstances, uh, it can be remarkably effective. Now, what are these circumstances? So uh, basically, uh, when uh, you have a situation where um, uh, the uh, the committee's preferences, that's the committee that's holding the hearings, their preferences are aligned with those of Congress overall, uh, then you see a lot more oversight activity. So uh, for instance, uh, if you have a committee that's a real outlier, that has preferences that are very different than Congress's preferences, that committee doesn't necessarily want to hold a hearing because it could you know, awaken a slumbering Congress uh, to make legislative changes uh, in a way that the committee disfavors. Uh, but where you have uh, the committee and Congress uh, having uh, preferences that are uh, consonant, that, that are uh, similar, uh, you have a lot more oversight happening. Now, when you say Congress's preferences, is that always something that's defined by who's in power, like which political party is in power, or can it be different? Yeah. So uh, to measure Congress preferences, I look at um, a a measure based on roll call votes um, that assigns, uh, it's this complicated algorithm that assigns uh, each member of Congress uh, a a score based on how liberal or conservative they are on a four-point scale, and the score is based on their roll call votes. And uh, you do see uh, pretty big jumps uh, in the median member of Congress's uh, score on that that ideology measure uh, based on who's in power. Um, but even uh, even under circumstances where you have unified government, say where, uh, as now, uh, the Republicans control Congress and they control the White House, uh, you do still see a lot of this oversight occurring. How could Congress use this oversight power more effectively than they are right now? 
Well, uh, I think uh, there could be two—Congress should consider two changes. Uh, and the first is a change to Congress's internal institutional design. Uh, so as I mentioned, where you have this disjuncture between uh, the committee's preferences and Congress overall's preferences, you see less oversight. So Congress could uh, create committees that are representative of floor preferences. So instead of having a bunch of uh, senators from farm states on the Agriculture Committee, uh, have uh, have that committee uh, have a diverse representation. That makes it more likely that the committee is going to oversee the USDA effectively. Uh, so make committees more representative of floor preferences. And Congress could also consider uh, some measures in the design of administrative agencies that would promote oversight. So uh, have uh, more, uh, give their inspector generals greater powers. These inspector generals are independent offices that are nested within administrative agencies and are charged with ferreting out corruption in those agencies. So if they had greater power, if they had higher budgets, uh, they could do more. Uh, Congress could also consider uh, increased whistleblower protections so civil servants uh, can, um, can report wrongdoing, uh, get that out to Congress, and Congress would take action. Uh, these are the sorts of um, enhancing civil service whistleblower protections, uh, enhancing inspector generals, um, maybe transitioning some single-member agencies like the CFPB to a multi-member structure so that at least one of the commissioners uh, would have an incentive to, to blow a whistle if he or she sees wrongdoing. Uh, those sorts of... Um, design changes within agencies uh, can really do a lot to motivate congressional oversight. Where do outside influences come into play? So, for example, you talked about committee composition. So there are people from farm states might really want to be on a committee that does oversight over the USDA, whereas someone who's representing more of an urban area just might not be interested in that. Or on the flip side, there may be industries that really want to fight against oversight. They don't want it. So how does that have an effect? I think there is a trade-off here, and you're, you're right to acknowledge it, that uh, if you have committees that are more representative, uh, the average committee member might be less interested uh, in conducting that oversight work. If you have committees that are more expert, uh, they're likely and more interested in, in uh, pursuing oversight, they're less likely to be representative uh, of the of floor preferences. Uh, this is uh, um, a an issue that's common uh, in principal agent situations. It's an expertise representative trade-off. Um, I think if you had representative committees, you might see less, uh, you might see some shirking uh, by some uh, legislators who are uninterested uh, in conducting the oversight. But I think overall, uh, you would still see a lot of effort. So if you're a member of Congress from an urban area, uh, you got placed on the Agriculture Committee um, you might be uh, pretty dejected by that, uh, but you might. I think your second thought would be, hey, if I'm going to have any influence at all in this chamber uh, during my time in Congress, I, I better uh, do my homework and I better uh, learn about uh, farm or agriculture-related issues um, because that's the committee I'm on. Um, and that's actually the, uh, the experience of uh, Shirley Chisholm, uh, who was a member of Congress uh, in the 60s and 70s. Uh, she's uh, from Brooklyn uh, when she got into Congress. Uh, the Democratic leadership, these are mostly uh, Southern uh, uh, racially conservative uh, Democrats, um, uh, didn't like her. So they placed her on the Agriculture Committee. And uh, her first reaction is, uh, is exactly what I described. She was upset. She thought this has no, no relation to my district. Um, but she, uh, over the course of her time uh, in Congress, uh, she became an expert on, on some of the issues uh, that uh, the Agriculture Committee uh, has uh, jurisdiction over and really became um, a leader in those areas. Uh, her, some of her obituaries mention uh, her leadership on Agriculture Committee issues. Uh, so I think that sort of experience uh, where... Um, you know, yes, if you have a, um, a more representative committee, maybe the average committee member would have less intrinsic interest in the subject. But I think that can be overcome uh, by this desire to have some influence and, hey, this is the committee I'm on. 
um, if I want to be effective uh, as a member of Congress, I better uh, do it in this area. Uh, I think that can be a real motivator for members of Congress. Well, I'd also think that it would, might give them, in some sense, a fresher perspective because they're sort of coming at it from that outsider view. And also, they may not feel as influenced about making certain decisions that might anger the people that they're going to ask to vote for them in two or four or six years. Yeah, I, I think that's exactly right. You have uh, the, There's always a potential of, of capture with these committees. There's a term political scientists have, iron triangles, where you have uh, the subcommittee with jurisdiction over an agency, the agency officials, and interest groups. So those are three groups that are each, each is a side of the triangle um, that have kind of their own uh, cohesive policy uh, network uh, that doesn't really uh, allow for outside influence to come in, and, and, and something that's very undemocratic. Um, and if you can break up those iron triangles, if you can have um, people with a fresh perspective uh, or people who aren't wedded to certain interest groups um, have an influence in policy, I think the effects of that would be largely positive. Now, why is it important for business to understand this role of Congress? Well, uh, so I think regulation is very important. Uh, arguably to all businesses, but certainly to businesses in, in many heavily regulated industries. Um, I think most businesses have an understanding that uh, they ought to have um, some knowledge of the lawmaking process, of uh, what legislators are doing um, uh, in terms of uh, introducing bills that could affect their industry and trying to influence those bills. Uh, many businesses have uh, knowledge and deep understanding of the regulatory process, how regulatory agencies uh, introduce uh, rulemakings and, and moving to final rules that could influence their industry. Uh, many businesses, though, uh, don't see oversight oversight as part of the mix. Um, they don't, uh, and I think to the extent that businesses could be aware that, hey, when hearings are held uh, on a regulatory issue that affects my business, um, this could lead to direct policy change. It doesn't have to be the schoolhouse rock situation where Congress is passing a law, and it doesn't have to be that a regulatory agency um, sitting uh, in isolation uh, or uh, after a notice and comment period just passes a rule. Uh, it could be through oversight hearings uh, that Congress uh, influences agencies to, to make policy changes um, in ways that really affect uh, businesses in these regulated industries. So I think it would behoove uh, a lot of firms to, to take that into account. What would you say to firms for whom the terms oversight or regulation, it might strike fear into their hearts? Well, I would say a few things. And first, um, it should strike fear no more than the extent to which uh, the prospect of legislation or the prospect of new regulation strikes fear into their hearts. Um, firms uh, um, are comfortable or at least are aware that there can be legislative changes that affect their industry. Uh, for better or worse, they lobby uh, around legislation. Um and uh, in some cases, legislation and regulation can help them if uh, there's a common problem where uh, larger firms can, um, can benefit from uh, a lot of red tape that can shut out smaller competitors. Um, so my first response is that uh, they should worry about oversight to the same extent that they worry about uh, other forms of policymaking. Um, and the second is uh, sometimes these oversight hearings do involve officials, uh, or rather executives, from, uh, from the private sector. Um, and I think... Uh, I would urge uh, members of the business community to to take those hearings seriously. Uh, there have been uh, times where um, uh, executives have come before Congress and have seemed arrogant or have seemed unprepared, and sometimes that can lead to changes uh, that are adverse to those businesses. So uh, in the aftermath of the financial crisis, uh, the Senate Permanent Subcommittee on Investigations uh, held a series of hearings on um, on mortgage-backed securities, uh, and some of the uh, the bank executives that testified uh, were, uh, well, what will seem to many people to be a little arrogant or a little unprepared or dismissive of the, of the committee. Uh, well, those hearings uh, um, 
ended up being an impetus uh, towards uh, introducing a version of the Volcker Rule uh, that ended up in the Dodd-Frank Amendment. Uh, I'm not saying that, uh, that excuse me, the Dodd-Frank Bill. Uh, I'm certainly not saying that things would have been different if um, if the committee hearing uh, had gone uh, more smoothly for those executives, but it certainly didn't help uh, that uh, at a committee hearing uh, charged with uh, ferreting out uh, alleged wrongdoing in banking, uh, a lot of the uh, bank witnesses uh, seemed um, seemed uninterested. That that certainly didn't help uh, uh, those banks uh, when uh, it was time to introduce uh, uh, the Merkley Levin Amendment, the amendment that uh, um, strengthened uh, protections uh, strengthened um, protections uh, between uh, banks' proprietary trading uh, and their traditional banking activities. Uh, so I would say to to really come prepared and and. Uh, be respectful and humble and uh, seek to educate and engage with the committee. I mean, we're even seeing this today where we've had a, we've seen a lot of heads of social media companies recently be called to some of these hearings to talk about privacy concerns, or I think more recently it's been talking about who they block and who they don't block and those have even been reported really widely in the media too, so the public has also had a chance to weigh in. Yeah, yeah, I think it's a it's a great way uh, for uh, democratic accountability to happen, where you have uh, public engagement on those issues. Um, and if I were uh, the chief executive of a social media company, I would uh, worry not only about the prospect that this will lead some, to some sort of legislative fix, uh, I would also wonder that, hey, uh, the FTC and the uh, Department of Justice Antitrust Division, they're watching these hearings, and they're getting a signal about what Congress's priorities are. Uh, and they can act independently uh, based on what they hear in those hearings. That That's really uh, a takeaway from uh, from my research. And what are some future lines for your research? Well, I'm exploring different ways in which um, uh, political actors can influence regulatory outcomes. So um, right now I'm looking at the composition of multi-member committees uh, like the Securities and Exchange Commission uh, or the Federal Communications Commission. And what I found is that whereas for most of these commissions' uh, histories, um, they were mostly staffed by uh, former lawyers, uh, kind of DC types uh, that were uh, that became commissioners or board members. And over the past twenty years, there's been a huge increase in the number of congressional staffers that are now commissioners. So, in the major commissions, about forty percent of their commissioners or board members came from the Hill, uh, were formerly chief counsel to a prominent senator or a policy director on a committee. And I'm looking at how that's changed the functioning of these uh, of these regulators and, and how that can influence. Um, the, the eventual uh, regulatory outcomes uh, that, they, uh, that they enact and that affect uh, firms. Brian, thanks so much for being with us. Oh, thank you. You can find all of Knowledge at Wharton's podcasts, articles, and more on our website, which is knowledge.wharton.upenn.edu. You can also find all of our podcasts on Apple Podcasts or your other favorite podcasting app. If you like what you hear, please leave us a review. It really does help like-minded folks to find the podcast. Thanks for listening. For more insight from Knowledge at Wharton, please visit knowledge.wharton.upenn.edu. Thank you.